Good morning. Uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni. It's great to be here with you all as we gather together to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week, we started Luke chapter 16, and this week, we're going to continue where we last left off. Um, and so in our study last week, if you weren't with us, just as a way of reminder and recap, kind of catch us up. Uh, We noted some principles of stewardship as Jesus addressed his disciples concerning the need to be good stewards. We noted how we are all called to be stewards of the resources that God has given to us, our time, our talents, our treasure, and the truth of the gospel. And how one day, as stewards, we are all going to be held accountable for what we did with God's resources. We are exhorted through the account of the unjust steward to seize the opportunities we have today to prepare for the eternal. And the overall application we noted was how Jesus exhorted us to invest in the internal, to be faithful, and to be undivided in our service to the Lord. We were reminded that we cannot serve two masters, how it is impossible to serve both God and mammon or earthly riches and wealth. Well, this morning we're going to see that while Jesus was specifically addressing his disciples, there were not only they were not only the one, excuse me, they were not the only ones to uh, take in this teaching of Jesus's. The Pharisees were also still there, and in our text today we're going to look at how the Pharisees responded to Jesus's teaching about stewardship and earthly riches. Now, the title of our study this morning is going to be, What's That Smell? Okay, What's That Smell? And um, as we get into the teaching, I hope that that title will make a little bit more sense. Um, Our text this morning is going to be short. Okay, We're only going to be looking at five verses from Luke chapter 16. Our text will, will be Luke 16, verses 14 through 18. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke 16. Uh, and then I'd like to invite you to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read through our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. Okay, If you're reading from a different translation, I just want to encourage you to do your best to follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. So Luke writes the following in chapter 16, verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. That is our text for today. It is an interesting one, one that we are going to hopefully make sense of. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can gather in this place, we can open up your word, and that your Holy Spirit is here to lead us and to guide us into all truth. We thank you for the freedom that we have to gather uh, publicly, Lord, uh, to open up your word. And Lord, I just ask, Lord, that as we've opened your word, that in like manner our hearts uh, would be open uh, to receive all that you have for us this morning. Lord, that our minds would be open, our eyes would be open, our ears would be open to receive 
all that you have. And so, Lord, I pray, uh, give us understanding, give us wisdom as we tackle a, an interesting portion of Scripture, one that's caused some confusion. I pray that you would set our minds straight and that the message that I prepared would be um, your words, Lord, and that I'd be able to powerfully bring forth this message for you. Lord, I pray that you would minister to your people as we've gathered in this place. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. You know, last month, uh, Farah and I had, my wife Farah, uh, and I had the privilege of serving as tour guides in the Land Down Under Bible lesson class for our Zoomerang VBS. Um, we had such a great time loving on and, and teaching the kids. And the main focus of our VBS this last uh, month was how all humans are fearfully and wonderfully made. And on day two, we focused upon the wonder of life and how our bodies were made with amazing design. We taught the kids all about different parts of our bodies, how amazing they are, and one of which uh, was the nose. And uh, some interesting facts, we learned a, a lot of amazing facts about the nose that day and our ability to smell like how our noses are able to detect over one trillion different smells and how they have some 10 million smell receptors within them. I found that amazing because I don't even, can't even think of one trillion different smells, but our nose can detect uh, that many different smells, evidently. Uh, also, one, some cool information about how the mucus produced in our noses helps to warm the air we breathe so that our lungs don't freeze. I thought, oh, that's, that's awesome. Um, another interesting fact is how the part of the brain that processes smells also deals with memories. And so often when you smell a certain scent, it will remind you of a certain memory. You know, have you ever smelled something that just instantly takes you back to a certain memory in your life, a certain time in your life? You know, maybe you walk in your, into a place and you're like, oh man, this, this reminds me of my grandma's house, or this reminds me of this time I went and did this. There's just certain smells that are connected with certain memories, and it's all because God made our bodies that way. Uh, very just amazing how um, God designed our bodies. Well, in our text this morning, there was a, a whiff of something that was foul in the air, okay? Something that reeked, something that would make you turn your nose away in disgust. You know what I'm talking about, right? Just you know, those things that just smell really bad. Gym clothes that were left on the bottom of the laundry basket. Um, I, I, I gave this example first service, but evidently you guys don't have to take your trash out like we normally do. So usually you take the trash out and it sits in a bin for like all week baking. Then you have to go pull it off to the cart to the roadside. But evidently you guys don't have to do that, right? It's just one, one stop. You dump it and you don't have to touch it again. Well, you know, if you, you're blessed, okay, um, <laughs> that you don't have to do that. Because after sitting in the sun for a week, it, it, whew, it does not smell too great, okay? Um, I have a three-year-old still in diapers, okay, poopy diapers. Some of those are just like awful, right? You know, it's like, oh my goodness, make you want to gag. Um, this last week, Farah gave me a hard time for one of my cycling jerseys that was letting out a, a less than desirable odor uh, throughout the house. Uh, and then even after soaking it in hot water, some color-safe bleach, and some uh, liquid laundry detergent, it, it still needed more attention. She let me know, like, no, this still, this still needs more. Um, and so just you have those smells that just kind of, you know, you just turn your face away. You, 
you don't want to take in another uh, bit of it. In our text this morning, the Pharisees, they are responding to what they just heard Jesus teach his disciples regarding mammon, okay, earthly riches, and the statement about how Jesus declared you cannot serve God and mammon. And so let's take a look at our opening verse once again and read for ourselves their initial response and how it kind of applies to this idea of this foul smell. Verse 14 says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. Now, our opening verse tells us a little about these Pharisees, that they were lovers of money. The phrase lovers of money, it comes from a single compound Greek word. It's philarguros, philos meaning loving, while aguros means silver. It refers to money. Putting them together, the Greek word literally means money-loving. And so these Pharisees, they were money-loving. They used their positions as religious leaders to exploit others and to serve their own money-hungry desires and self-indulgences. Jesus is recorded as rebuking the Pharisees and the scribes as hypocrites, pronouncing woe upon them because they devoured widows' houses, taking advantage of them as as poor and and helpless uh, widows. They would creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins and led away with various lusts as described by Paul in his letter to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. They would offer their services at a price okay, and, and continually take advantage of people all in the name of religion and their service to God. And they heard what Jesus said, that you cannot serve God and mammon, and were told that they derided him. Now, that's what it says in the New King James Version. Uh, this word derided, it's very descriptive in the Greek. Your translation may read that they ridiculed him or they were scoffing at him or how they were sneering at Jesus. But none of these translations give us the specific sense of the response of the Pharisees. Literally, the Greek word used here means to churn up the nose. Okay? And uh, the Greek root word, comes from the word mukter, which is the Greek word for nose. And so the idea of turning your nose towards something or someone is an act that's done to show a refusal to accept something because one feels that it's not good enough for them. Okay? It's an act of refusal and disgust. Okay? Turning your head away from something much like you would when you smell something awful, something that you know, repulses you. Okay. My wife, she's an excellent cook. Okay. I love all the food that she makes for me and the rest of the boys in the house. But there have been times that she has put certain foods before the boys, especially when they were younger, and where they would smell it and then you know, turn their heads away in disgust, thinking that you know, she was trying to serve them something just repulsive. And like, oh, I can't eat it. It's so gross. And it's, it's like broccoli or something. And you know, it's like, no, that's really good for you. And it's healthy. It tastes good. And they're like, oh, no, it's gross. You know, the act of, of turning your head away and lifting up your nose, it's somewhat of a universal sign of refusal and disgust, whether refusing food or in our text this morning, refusing words. The sense is the same. Here the Pharisees were turning their heads in disgust and rejection to what Jesus was teaching. They refused to receive his message. They felt that they knew better than him, that they knew better than him when it came to matters of money and earthly riches. After all, 
These Pharisees were some of the more wealthy and prominent people of the community. And Jesus was a homeless wanderer, okay, who spent most of his time with the poor and the desolate. What could he know about riches? That is the mindset that they had. Okay? Now, it's important that we zoom out a little here and understand the bigger picture going on as it applies to our own lives. Jesus had just laid down a great teaching. He shared the truth with his disciples. He was leading them away from danger and the allure of earthly riches. But the Pharisees, they loved money and they didn't want to receive what Jesus was teaching. And so they refused his teaching on the subject matter and they decided that they knew better than him. And that is where we can get into a lot of trouble ourselves. And we run into, we run the risk of acting like and being like these Pharisees. You see, we can hear God's word on a particular subject matter and refuse to listen to it. We can refuse to receive it. You know, we can have the truth revealed to us, but instead of receiving the truth, allowing the truth of God's word to lead us and to guide us in our walk, we decide that we know better than God and we do it our own way. We continue in sin. We continue to live in direct opposition to God's revealed truth. This is a very dangerous place to be, to refuse God's word, his revealed truth. And to continue in sin, to continue doing as you see fit, is just asking for trouble. The wages of sin is death. And God takes sin very seriously, and we will reap what we sow. That's what the book of Galatians teaches us. Paul writes, do not be deceived. That word deceived, it's that idea of being misled or to be led astray. He says, do not allow yourselves to be led astray. Okay, Don't let someone fool you into thinking this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Okay, It's that same Greek word for derided from our text, basically meaning you cannot turn your nose toward God without there being consequences. Okay? He says, God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of, his, of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. You know, I have spoken to a number of people through uh, my years of ministry uh, who have been confronted with truth, who I have showed very clearly what God's word says and teaches on a particular subject matter, only to have people in essence turn their noses up at me and towards God's word and decide to refuse the truth and instead to do what they think is best for themselves. People who claim to know God and they claim to be believers, refusing to accept God's truth and instead live according to their own rules and their own desires. It is a very sad, sad place to be. And you guys, I'm not just talking about, you know, the, the big sin issues, right, that we might think of, but the little things are important too. You know, God says to love your enemies. Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. But yet how many of us, knowing full well what Jesus commands us here, still allow hatred to fill and poison our hearts towards certain individuals or to even to entire groups of people? We ignore what Jesus says here and we try to justify our hatred by thinking of all the reasons why our hatred is warranted. What about this? God says that we are to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how often shall, we, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And he kind of gives us 
you know, option up to seven times, almost kind of like, Ooh, I'm willing to do it seven times, God. That's a lot, right? Like, uh, should I, that's probably the limit, right? No more than that, right? But Jesus responds, okay? He says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, for you math whizzes out there, Jesus wasn't saying 490 times, and then you no longer have to forgive, right? No, the, the idea was total, complete forgiveness. We're to forgive as many times as needed when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ that sinned against us. And yet, how many of us continue to carry unforgiveness around in our hearts towards certain people who have wronged us? We allow bitterness to fill our hearts, to harden them towards certain people whom God has told us to love and told us to forgive. We know God says to forgive, but in our hearts we say, I I just can't bring myself to forgive them. You know, they've wronged me too much. They've hurt me too much. I'm never going to forgive them. And you may think, you know, but Jesus just doesn't understand how, how badly they've hurt me and how wrong they, you know, were, what that wrong they did to me. But does he not? Think about it. Wasn't it he who cried out from the cross to the Father? Father, forgive them, right? The, the very people who had put him on that cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Some of you may object and say, yeah, well, he's God. He's able to do those things which are humanly impossible. Well, what about Stephen then? It was Stephen who knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them, the very people who were actively heaving stones upon him as a form of capital punishment. He says, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's a euphemism for died. He died. He was stoned to death. It is very important for us, church family, to live our lives according to the truth of Scripture. We can't just ignore God or claim to know better than God or try to explain how God's Word doesn't apply to us and our situations in today's world. You know, that's a, a popular one I've heard before. You know, um, people try to say God didn't mean what He said when He said that, or that only applies to the people in the culture of that day, right? You know, and our culture is different, and we need to update our understanding of God's Word. And, you know, someone tried to say stuff like that, basically saying that the Bible's outdated. It needs to be changed to fit our modern culture. Listen, you guys, it's all just churning our noses up towards God. Okay? It's us rejecting what he clearly says and going about things our own way. It's sinful and it's wrong and it will not go undealt with. My exhortation for us, you guys, is that we be doers of God's word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves as mentioned in James chapter 1, verse 22. Hey, we don't want to be the part, play the part of the Pharisees okay, who put um, word just hearers of God's word, but they would not respond to it. They heard Jesus' teaching, but they would not receive it. Well, let's see how Jesus responds to the Pharisees, turning their noses up towards Jesus and his teaching on mammon. Read verse 15 with me. It says, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus accused the Pharisees of being those who justify themselves before men. What Jesus meant by this is that the Pharisees would set themselves before men to show themselves righteous, as if there was nothing wrong with them. It actually paints the picture of a court setting, where the Pharisees would gladly set themselves before men to prove in a court 
of justice, how they were without fault. You see, man judges based upon the outside, what they can observe with their own senses. And the Lord rebuked Samuel for assuming Jesse's eldest son, Eliab, was the one whom God chose to be king over Israel simply because he looked the part. You guys may be familiar with that portion of Scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 16. God said to Samuel, he says, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance of others and judges based upon their limited senses. But God sees beyond all the outward appearances and he looks into the heart of man. The Pharisees did their best to look the part before man. Jesus had them in mind when he spoke about the hypocrites and how they acted before men, wanting to impress them. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, When you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. He said, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Moreover, he said, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. You see, the Pharisees, these hypocrites, they love to do their charitable deeds, their praying, their fasting, all before men as evidence of their holiness and their righteousness. They aim to please man, to wow mankind, to impress others with all of their religious services and their acts. But Jesus said of them that they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites who who cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. He said of them that they were like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appeared beautiful outwardly, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You see, to man, the Pharisees appeared holy, righteous, clean and beautiful, without spot or blemish. But God saw through all their acts. He saw their hearts. And their hearts were full of extortion, self-indulgences, uncleanness, and death, the result of great sin in their lives. Jesus states what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Listen, it was the Pharisees that were highly esteemed among men. Men looked upon the Pharisees and thought of them as holy and righteous. They saw them as high and lifted up. In most men's eyes, few were able to live up to the righteous standard of the Pharisees. And along with the Pharisees, riches were something that was highly esteemed among men. Most believed that riches were actually a sign of God's divine blessing upon an individual for their holy conduct. And the Pharisees, being lovers of money, were very well off. And they prided themselves on having money as yet another way to show mankind how God had blessed them and rewarded them for their zeal, for their pious, godly lifestyles. You know, God's blessed me with all this money because I'm so holy, you know. And and that's what sets me apart from you guys, right? That is the idea and the mindset. But Jesus said those things that are esteemed before men were an abomination in the sight of God. 
Uh, the word abomination here really is a play upon uh, that which the Pharisees had done in response to Jesus' teaching. We don't see it so much in the English, but it's very clear in the Greek. The word abomination in the Greek is the word bedel ugma. It comes from the word, the Greek word bedelus, bedel, bedeluso, uh, which means to render foul. Okay? It was used to describe the act of churning oneself away from a stench to feel disgust or to detest something. So an abomination is that which is detestable, something loathsome, something that would cause one to turn away from something as if it were foul and and filled with just an, an awful stench. Jesus was being very deliberate, I believe, in using this word abomination. For the Pharisees had turned their noses in disgust to Jesus' teaching, and it is as if Jesus is saying that God responds to them as they had responded to Jesus' teaching. God looked upon their hearts and turned his head away in disgust. It was an abomination. Their righteous acts, okay, their charades and hypocrisy were like an awful, foul stench that filled the nostrils of God made him turn away in disgust. And again, I see here a warning for us to avoid. We need to ensure that we're not playing the part of the Pharisees here. We need to make sure that we aren't doing our deeds before men that we may try to impress them. We need to make sure that we focus more of our attention upon the inside and what God is wanting to do there than we do on the outside in hopes to impress others. You see, it's easy to fall into the trap of pleasing men and putting on a front for others. We can usually fool a lot of people and we can make people think of us better than what we really are. But remember that God sees the heart. And, and when it's all said and done, you guys, we are going to stand before, we are not going to stand before man, but we will stand before the Lord and our hearts will be laid bare before him. Let's make sure that we aren't simply focusing our efforts upon what man sees and that we truly allow God to work on us from the inside out. May what we put out for the world to see be a true reflection of the work God has done on the inside. Well, let's continue on. We'll read our next verse, verse 16. It says, The law and the prophets were until John... Since then, that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. This verse and really the next two verses seem somewhat out of place. I mean, Jesus is talking about mammon, earthly riches, the Pharisees and their love for money and how their hypocrisy was an abomination in the sight of God. So what do those things have to do with the law and the prophets and the kingdom of God being preached and how everyone is pressing into it? It can be a bit confusing uh, you know, as part of my studies each week, I, I read through the text, I make different notes and uh, underline certain words. I want to look up this word, look up that word, and I read different commentaries and Bible dictionaries, lexicons. One commentator I read, I thought very interesting. I just wanted to share what he said about these verses, um, about verses 16 through 18 and their insertion here in chapter 16. This one commentator, he says, as a commentator, I feel like throwing up my hands on these verses They seem so unrelated and out of place. I'm sure they are sayings of Jesus, but why Luke chose to put them into this context remains a mystery to me. (laughs) And I just thought, well, that was not helpful at all. Um, But it's a bit confusing. As we read these 16, 17, 18, we're kind of like, what do these have to do with what Jesus is talking about? Well, I want to do my best 
to unpack these verses and figure out why Jesus inserted them here, believing that they are connected and that they are an important part of what Jesus is teaching here overall. When Jesus says the law and the prophets were until John, he is, of course, referring to John the Baptist. Okay, the law and the prophets leading up to John the Baptist all pointed to the same idea, the same main point, the coming kingdom of God and the coming of God's Messiah. As you read through the law and the prophets, there is a continual flow of message regarding God's plan of redemption and the establishment of his kingdom through the Messiah. And so the law and the prophets, they continue to echo that message. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. The Messiah is coming. But all of that changed when John arrived on scene. For now the message became, the kingdom of God is here. Okay, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, along with the birth of John the Baptist came the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as John began his earthly ministry, he was preparing the way for Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. John's message was different from all the previous Old Testament prophets because while they all proclaimed the future coming of God's Messiah, John was the one that got to proclaim, he's here, okay? the time is now. John stated of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And since that time, since the coming of John and his preaching of the kingdom of God, Jesus says how everyone is pressing into it. What exactly this means is a bit confusing, and it depends upon your translation. You may be led to understand this verse in a couple of different ways. Some translations, like the uh, ESV, the NIV, and the NASB, they use verbiage, the verbiage of force to indicate how people are trying to force themselves into the kingdom. Other translations, like the Holman Christian Standard Bible, translated a bit differently, describing how people are strongly urged to enter into the kingdom of God. The New Living Translation translate that, that last bit as, everyone is eager to get in. Now, these kind, these kind of have different implications, the way that they are read. Forcing oneself in gives the idea of trying to get in through a way that's not normal or not acceptable. People being strongly urged to enter gives the idea that people should, you know, greatly desire to enter in. And the idea of being eager to get in, it, it speaks of someone who will do whatever is necessary to get in. And, and so how should we understand this idea of everyone pressing into the kingdom of God? Well, when we take a look at the actual words that are used, we get an idea, I believe. The verb translated as pressing is the Greek word biadzo. And it means to overpower or to employ violence, but also can be used to speak about rushing into something recklessly. Okay, in the context here of our verse, it would seem to mean that people are pressing into the kingdom of God. They are seeking to enter in forcefully in haste without really considering what is required. The idea seems to be that these people were hearing the message of God's kingdom being at hand and they were not carefully considering the full extent of that message. They were acting hastily, wanting to be part of the kingdom without understanding what that really meant. When this verb is used in the middle voice, which is how it's used here in our text, it carries the meaning of one pressing himself in to seize the kingdom with his own energy, as if the kingdom could be had as something to be grasped. Uh, one of my Greek lexicons gave this explanation for the word's use 
this word's use in verse 16, stating that this implies the thoughtless eagerness with which the gospel was seized. Um, that they were, you know, everybody, there's this new message, you know, the kingdom of, is at hand. Everyone's real excited. Everybody wants, yeah, we want that. We want that. That's what we want. But not really understanding what that really means. Okay? And so understanding the meaning of this word, looking back into the context of our portion here, I think we can put these things together. The Pharisees were all about God's kingdom and being part of God's kingdom, but they were trying to get in through their own means, through their own standard of righteousness. They were not considering the fullness of the message that was preached. The gospel message that John and Jesus preached was a message based upon faith in God and his righteousness, not on our outward works and our own righteousness. The Pharisees were trying to secure their spot in the kingdom based upon their own righteous standard and how they fared amongst men. But God's measuring standard is not based upon fallen man. God's measuring standard is his own perfection. And none of us can measure up to his perfect standard. And that is why we need the gospel. The gospel message details how we can have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account by grace through faith It's not about us, but it's about God and his gift to us. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. The Pharisees were measuring themselves before men, and they felt that they were more than qualified. They were the gold standard amongst men. But before God, their hypocritical religious deeds were an abomination. And so I believe what Jesus is saying here carries with it a a negative tone to it. People are trying to force their way into the kingdom through various means, dismissing the standard God has laid out through his word. And I believe this is why Jesus affirms the reliability and the unfailing nature of God's word in the next verse. Take a look at it, verse 17. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. God's word is going to stand the test of time. It will not fail. Heaven and earth will pass away long before one tittle, okay, which is the smallest stroke in a Hebrew letter. Okay, it, heaven and earth will pass away long before one tittle of the law ever fails. We must remember what Jesus said about the law and the prophets. He emphatically states, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill For assuring that I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot, one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, you guys, the Pharisees were those who broke the commandments and they taught others to do likewise. Jesus said of them how they lay aside the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men instead. In Matthew's gospel, he challenged the scribes and Pharisees, asking them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. He concluded that they were hypocrites and that Isaiah had prophesied well about them when he declared, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Church family, God's word 
His standard is clear and it does not change. Okay? Based upon the traditions of men, culture that we live in, okay, or the time in which we, you know, it was written and the time in which we live. Any other, or any other excuse, okay, people may use to try and justify themselves and force their way into the kingdom of God. There is only one way into God's kingdom. There's only one way into heaven. You must be perfect. You must attain God's righteous standard. And the sad truth of the matter is that none of us can ever measure up to that standard on our own. That is why we need Jesus and his righteousness. Jesus is the only person to ever live a perfect, sinless life here on earth. And he gave that life up for us upon the cross of Calvary. He took our sins with him to the cross. He paid the penalty for those sins. He paid the price for them through his death. And then three days later, he rose from the grave, proving his victory, his power over sin and death. And he offers to us by grace, through faith, his perfect righteous standing before God. Perfection is what is required to get into heaven. And Jesus offers to us his his perfection if we will repent and put our faith in him as our Lord and Savior. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A way has been made for us to enter into heaven by Jesus. He is the only way. Jesus affirms this in John's gospel when he stated, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way, okay? But the Pharisees were trying to make another way, trying to force their way into the kingdom of God. Let's take a look at our final verse. We'll see how it fits into what Jesus is speaking of here in our text. Read with me verse 18. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Here in verse 18, Jesus speaks about the topic of divorce and remarriage. And again, it seems at first to be completely unrelated to what Jesus is speaking of in our text. But upon further review, I think we can see a connection. Jesus is talking about money, the Pharisees, their love for money, how they were undermining God's word by trying to change the standard by which people were judged and forcing their way into God's kingdom. And what I believe Jesus is doing here is giving a perfect example of just one way they were doing this. You see, if you think about it, divorce and money are actually very closely related. Okay? Divorce is a very lucrative business. Okay? My cousin is a family lawyer who handles a lot of divorces. She charges a rate of $375 an hour, okay? and she's doing quite well for herself. Okay? Divorce and money do go hand in hand. Okay? And according to extra biblical resources, I want to make that clear from the get-go that you won't find this in the Bible, but according to different Jewish um, books, historical documents about the rabbis and their teachings and whatnot, from these extra biblical resources, we come to find that during Jesus' day, there was some debate surrounding divorce and who was permitted to get a divorce. The Pharisees, you may recall, even tried to stumble Jesus once and he came to them and said, you know, so, you know, who do you say, you know, can we get a divorce? What do you say? And he says, well, what does the scripture say? And he says, oh, Moses said that we could, you know, write someone a perjury, you know, and he goes through all that, right? So it it was a topic of debate. 
Now, there were evidently two main schools of thought that revolved around what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 24. If you want to turn there, you can, but I have the verses up here on the screen for you. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, we get Moses' instructions on divorce and, and remarriage and what that looks like. Moses wrote this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, as you can see from the reading in Deuteronomy, Moses' intention in writing this was not to encourage divorce, but moreover to hinder it. Okay? These were things that would make a husband think twice before hastily trying to put his wife away. However, The people completely missed that fact, and instead they focused in on what Moses said in verse 1 about a husband finding an uncleanness in his wife. They took the writings of Moses and interpreted it to be speaking about details regarding allowances for divorce, even though that really isn't what Moses was even writing about in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Still, nonetheless, that's what they focused in upon. And the rabbis set to understand and to define what that word uncleanness meant. Thinking, well, that Moses was identifying grounds for divorce through God's eyes. If you want to get a divorce, well, there has to be some sort of uncleanness that you find in your wife. Well, what does that word mean? Okay, the two main schools of thought were from two prominent rabbis. Rabbi Shammai interpreted uncleanness to specifically be talking about a sexual offense committed by his wife. More specifically, he understood it to mean a sexual encounter outside of wedlock. It was an act of adultery. So under Shammai's interpretation, the only way one would be allowed to divorce his wife was if she committed a physical act of adultery. Otherwise, he was bound in marriage until death. Rabbi Hillel on the other hand, interpreted uncleanness to mean anything that, be, that could be considered shameful towards the husband. If the husband ever felt ashamed of his wife, he could then give her a certificate of divorce and put her away. Okay? If his wife spoke ill of him in front of others, Hillel interpreted that would be grounds for divorce. If his wife's cooking was something he was ashamed of, he could get a divorce. Even if the husband found someone else to be more attractive than his wife, and then it caused him to feel ashamed to be married to her, he could get a divorce. Anything that made the husband feel ashamed was grounds for divorce, according to Rabbi Hillel. Well, one school of thought was championed over the other, okay? And I'll let you guess as to which one that was, okay? The people loved Rabbi Hillel and his interpretation, okay, and his liberal stance. Okay, it was the most popular view amongst all of the people, and it's believed that the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they stuck to Rabbi Hillel's interpretation of divorce as well. And so let me bring this around full circle here, okay, so that we can understand. What are you talking about? So, according to Rabbi Hillel's interpretation of Moses' use of the word uncleanness, 
Okay? It, practically meant, it meant that practically anyone could get a divorce for any sort of reason. Okay? Now, the process of getting a divorce required that a man go and have a handwritten certificate of divorce prepared for the divorce, and it would require two official witnesses as well. Well, guess who were the ones in charge of making and preparing certificates of divorce and signing off on them as witnesses? The Pharisees. It was the scribes and the lawyers. They were the ones that were in charge of this. <laughs> and most of the scribes and the lawyers were Pharisees. And these services, they were not free of charge. Okay? And so it would seem that keeping to a very loose interpretation for grounds for divorce was a great, great, excuse me, a great way for these Pharisees to fill their money purses with some much valued coinage. They were extorting people their money based upon a very loose and liberal interpretation of God's law pertaining to divorce. And so it would make sense for Jesus to bring this topic up here because it served as evidence of one way in which they were using their own man-made traditions to trump God's standard in order to gain more of the money that they so loved. Jesus speaks about how a man who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and that whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. You guys, these verses must be taken in context. They must be understood amongst the rest of what Jesus had to say on this subject matter. This is not the only time Jesus spoke about divorce, and it's important that we look to everything the Bible says about subject matters before we start making dogmatic-type stances and opinions. Here's something I want to just set straight. We're not going to look into the great details of marriage and divorce. We only have a little bit more time. But here's what I will say, just a few things. God's design for marriage is that it be one man, one woman, coming together as one flesh for one lifetime. That is the intent. That is the design behind marriage. Okay, Matthew chapter 19, verse 6 alludes to that. Okay, it has its roots all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 2 when God first established the very first marriage between Adam and Eve. Okay? And so we know what God's design for marriage is. And I also want to let you know that divorce is not something that God desires for us. In fact, the scriptures tell us that God hates divorce. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 tells us that. Although divorce is not part of God's design for marriage, and he does hate it, there are biblical grounds for divorce. And Jesus said that divorce was something that was permitted because of the hardness of people's hearts, because of sin and its effect upon hardening our hearts and our inability to love and to forgive one another. Divorce is permitted in certain cases. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who's divorced commits adultery. Added here in Matthew's gospel is this exception clause, if you will, indicating that this strict stance upon divorce and remarriage does not apply to those who have been divorced because of sexual immorality. Jesus said so plainly in his Sermon on the Mount when he said, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a woman who's divorced commits adultery. Now, there is another biblical reason that Paul gives for divorce and it's, uh, and it's due to abandonment of an unbeliever. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is addressing mixed marriages where you have uh, one of the um, spouses is a believer, the other one is an unbeliever, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and the context there is only applies to mixed marriages, okay? It does not pertain to marriages where both parties are believers. But this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. He says, if the unbeliever departs, the idea is if they leave, if they just abandon the marriage, right? He says, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And so we have those two allowances, if you will, uh, for biblical grounds for divorce. Other than these two specifically mentioned situations, the Bible does not give any other reasons where divorce would be permitted. Now, the Bible does talk about separation and the need to do that amongst believers, amongst uh, Christians, husband and wife, for a season that they might work things out, that they might seek the Lord. Obviously, if you are in a dangerous situation, in an abusive relationship, God's given us a brain. We need to use it. Okay? We need to get out of those situations, look for the kind of help that's needed in creating a healthier and safer environment. Okay? Um, and so... Much can be said about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but I do not believe that it was Jesus' intention to teach the Pharisees about these things as much as it was a way for him to call them out on just one way they were undermining God's word, taking advantage of their position as scribes and lawyers to ultimately serve their true God, the God they really loved, which was mammon, riches. Okay? I do not believe we should look at verse 18 and say, oh, this is what, you know, God's final word is on this topic, okay? Because it's, it's one verse, okay? And, and there are many verses that talk about this topic. It is a very sensitive topic, and it's one that I know touches a lot of our lives. And so I just want to encourage you um, that God has a lot to say about this matter, okay? And if you'd like counsel or you need prayer or you need insight into that, I make myself available. I'd love to speak to you about that. Um, but we're not going to dive more into that. Time just does not allow for that this morning. 